I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. We're talking about the messier subjects related to the church. For this episode's topic, When Bad People Do Good Things, I'm speaking with Keanu Hidari, PhD candidate at the University of Michigan. We'll be discussing the bewilderment and hurt that occurs when someone who is well-known, respected, and loved turns out to be the author of horrendous abuse. We'll use the case of a spiritual leader who developed and led a renowned ministry caring for adults with mental disabilities, only for it to be discovered after his death that he sexually abused many women. We'll be referring to an article throughout the episode, and you can find a link to that article in the show notes. If you haven't listened to Season 1, Episode 3, What is Spiritual Abuse? I encourage you to check it out. I could frame our conversation about Venia a little bit and to kind of give listeners just a a brief intro into why this is so important. So Jean Venier was a a Canadian Catholic theologian. Uh, He was born in Geneva in 1928 in Switzerland. And he died in Paris, actually, in May of last year, so 2019. So in 1964, he, ma- he founded this organization, uh, which is basically, you can think of it as a charitable voluntary organization called L'Arche, or the Arc, the Arch. And it's dedicated to working with these people who have profound intellectual uh, and physical disabilities. What was cool about L'Arche is that it, it's a communitarian-based organization where people with these disabilities and their caretakers live together in intentional community. So today, the, 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 the Umbrella Corporation, L'Arche International, has uh, offices in, I think, 38 countries around the world, and it has 153 of these communities. So Vanier was also a theologian, and he wrote some really important books, some of which have been very influential on me. So here's where the story gets a little bit dark. In February of 2020, uh, a report commissioned by L'Arche and conducted by an external organization revealed that Vanier had sexually abused six women in France from about 1970 to 2005. Um, The report said that Vanier engaged in, quote, manipulative and emotionally abusive relationships with them. And strangely enough, Vanier appealed to, quote, highly unusual spiritual or mystical explanations to justify his behavior. So the question then for me becomes, how do you reconcile the uh, abuse of an abuser with the good they've done? And I think in the case of Vanier especially, um, I think this is a wonderful case study to begin thinking about this weird dynamic that we have here. And I say weird dynamic because that, again, causes this cognitive dissonance. Um, But yeah, that's that's a little bit about Vanya and and how he's been he's been received. Uh, Notre Dame removed two awards posthumously in light of. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's and it's this question of is he a bad person who did good things or a good person who did bad things? Mm. And that's, that's the, 
and it, it comes down to this question of evil and theology of evil and do you believe evil exists or are we born into evil or are we born into goodness and then we become evil and that's a whole other subject but it's so important it's an important question to ask and i love the article that you sent Absolutely. me which i will share in the show notes is it ends it really it just really hit me the way it ends it ends with the person who wrote the article i have no answers that's how it ends and it just ends in this place of i don't i don't i don't know and i think that's what i'm trying to do with the podcast is this desire to know the right answer and have the right answer yeah. and be able to put everyone in these categories mm-hmm. this desire to be right leads to this extreme fear and that extreme mm-hmm. fear leads to the damage and the abuse and it might start out with good intentions but it becomes abusive that's one facet of it for sure mm-hmm. i do think that sexual abuse and i could say any kind of abuse honestly there's this level of inhumanness that i think a person has to uh arrive at to be able to do that and and mm-hmm. that is a difficult situation to navigate. You Definitely. you mentioned, um, yeah, Diane Lamberg. Do you know a, a lot about her? I actually don't know too much about her her own scholarship and works, but I, I actually came across her Twitter account, and uh, I, I I studiously follow her tweets and like look at the articles that she links to and publishes, and it's been super helpful for me in beginning to think about this issue. Which for me, I was in a privileged position, you know, being male. Uh, not necessarily growing up in the church, where I have not been attuned personally to conversations about, you know, rumors of sexual indiscretion of priests or pastors. I haven't been in that community. I became a Christian when I was 14. And so because of that, like, long gap of not having, and actually having the great fortune myself of not being in, in spaces where I was directly exposed to that kind of stuff until relatively recently, I I think... What that's, what that's done for me is given me a, a set of disadvantages, a disadvantages and a set of advantages. The advantages are I can have, you know, quote unquote, distance and objectivity from it. The, dis- the, the, the disadvantage would be that I don't know the pain and the personal stories from a firsthand perspective. And I think because of that, my place is to listen. And I think her Twitter account has been very instrumental in teaching me what it means to listen pastorally and to listen and to not listen for the sake of solving a problem, to not listen for the sake of judgment or righteousness or whatever, but just to listen and hear someone who, who for whatever reason has to narrate their own story. Because telling our stories from what her account has taught me is part of what it means to reintegrate one psyche, to reintegrate spiritually. If you don't have a chance if you go through catastrophe, your life is destroyed in more than one way. And if you don't have the chance to reintegrate who you are, to reintegrate that story of who you, who, of who you tell yourself that you are, then there's no way to get better. There's no way to, to move on and deal with trauma. Would you say maybe in a situation cognitive dissonance when you have both a horrible experience and a beautiful experience with the same person 
that maybe the way to approach it is not which one is he but rather to tell just tell the story just tell mm. tell the story as it happened the good the bad the evil the beautiful and and that it's more about your journey and your reintegration and mm-hmm. your your own spiritual interaction with that as opposed to having this black and white category for a human being. I think this this kind of Manichaean distinction between good and evil, it's not, theologically, it's extremely important in terms of understanding, the, you know, the cosmic role of God and, and all that kind of stuff, and, you know, God defeating evil. But I think when it comes to looking at a world that's poisoned by forces that we can't understand, we do our best to understand them, and we've gone a long way since, you know, measuring people's skulls in 1800 to now giving people medication. Uh, I think we've gone a long way, but we still don't understand motivation. And I think a purely environmental or a purely uh, genetic biological explanation won't give us satisfaction. It doesn't help an abuse victim to say, this person has a damaged brain, that's why they sexually assaulted you. That's not, that's not it. There's more to the story. Because people with sexually, uh, people who have experienced, people who uh, have damaged brains don't always uh, commit acts of sexual abuse. So I think there's a, there's a sense in which we need another frame. We need a more uh, expansive, holistic frame. So when it comes to someone reintegrating uh, into some semblance of normality, we have to avoid, I think, this, this Manichaean distinction between good and evil. Because God will take care of evaluating the hearts of every single person. But when it comes to the lived daily experience of life, we have good and evil within us. It's not helpful. It's not helpful to, to dwell on understanding how someone you once loved and cherished or worked under in a professional capacity and also loved and cherished could then abuse that trust in such a profound and intimate way. It's not helpful to then say, this person is evil, this person is good. I think it, it, it harkens back to something you mentioned. It's that person tapping into a state or a stage even of inhumanness and working and living from that inhumanity. And I think because most people don't go about their day living and dwelling in inhumanity, that encounter with darkness opens a space of profound doubt. And we have a tendency to blame ourselves for what happened. What would you say about our responsibility for justice and to act justice when we do have power and we are in a position of power in light of the fact that we see this person doing both good and good and evil? Let's start with that. Sure. I think this is, this is, a, this is a point for me to perhaps lay my own theological cards on the table. Two of my profound influences have been the work of Karl Barth, the Protestant uh, theologian of the 20th century, and uh, more recently at, at Duke Divinity School, the work of David Campbell. And I think what's really important for me is to say that the very, very foundation of all inner church conversations about spiritual abuse cannot be a practical conversation about saving faith. And obviously no one would ever admit to that, right? No one would ever say, we're trying to cover this story up. Like no one's going to say it that way. But it's always about 
respectability politics, saving face, and blaming victims. And that, that has to stop. And granted, it's a little bit arrogant and presumptuous of scholars and academics to, to give you know, prescriptions about what, what has to change because people on the field know what they're doing. People who are dealing with the broken shards of our humanity after experiences of abuse are the ones who are doing the actual healing. So I'm not gonna offer any prescriptions, right? But one way to perhaps think about what's going on is to think of what the theme of apocalyptic means. And the word apocalyptic uh, is not what you think some kind of Nicolas Cage left behind film. Uh, it, it's actually the word for revelation. And I think what's important about that word is the basis of our humanity, the basis of our value is inherent because we're God's creatures, but it is authenticated and confirmed because of what Christ has done. That authentication, that act of confirming the value of every single human being is sealed, signed, and delivered by the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The one word beyond apocalyptic that I would say to start that conversation is the Greek word aletheia, or alethia, if you want to use whatever pronunciation, but it's, it's the Greek word for disclosure, truth. And I think disclosure and truth is an excellent way to think about the, the nature of truth and reality. It is a gift that has been disclosed to us by God. Once we start from the foundation that Christ is at the center of our, even the way we think about reality, epistemology, we have a whole set of ethical commitments and considerations that come from that. And I think once we know then that the very, very basis of how we think about the world is telling the truth, that God begins his story of our reconciliation, not by an act of bloody murder and sacrifice that God murdered his son. That's just, that's one way to go about thinking about it, but an act of self-disclosure, an act of revealing himself in the history of his deeds, an act of saying, I am here for my people. I'm here for the brokenness, the, the shame, the guilt, the abuse. I'm going to enter into that as well. And he reveals that brokenness in sometimes unflattering ways in the gospel. So once we know then that Alessayah disclosure is this kind of big capital T truth that's being talked about in, say, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, I think we know then that both those in power who have uh, administrative responsibilities, who have um, anyone in a hierarchy of a church, and I would also venture to say anyone in the laity who has access to information, it is an act of blatant disregard. It's not just a mistake. It's not just, and I don't like talking about committing sins with reference to violating a certain code of ethics, because that's not what I think sin means in, in any of the uh, Pauline letters. I don't think that's what sin means in the gospel. But that's besides the point. If a lay person sees spiritual abuse, psychological, emotional, sexual abuse happening in the church, if anyone does, they need to go back to what the heart of the gospel is. And it's not a question about going to heaven or hell primarily. It's about God revealing the nature of who he is through Christ. And that act of disclosure is a commitment that I'm going to be with my people, heal them, restore them, restore sight to the blind, you know, give food to the poor, all those things that we know about being in church for so long. Once we see a set of behaviors that don't align with that, we have an ethical, spiritual, religious commitment to disclose them. And that's, that's what I think I wanted to say. That's my, that's my one key point there. The lack of a passion to disclose is not just a spiritual failure. 
it's not just a an example of cowardice. It's not just an example of laziness. What it is, is a very denial of the character of God himself. And I think once we begin to think about what's at stake by denying God, by choosing not to disclose. And again, I should clarify, I'm not talking about someone who's been victimized themselves, because that's a whole nother conversation. I'm saying someone in a position of power who knows about an instance of abuse, a lay person who knows about abuse and chooses to not go forward, whatever institutional avenues, whatever legal avenues exist, uh, and I'm sure your podcast can provide resources for people who, who have been in that position. But I would say that it's an, it's an act of denying the very character of what it means to be a human being, to choose to not disclose evil, corruption. That's my take on it, at least. Yeah, and I think that that could be helpful in answering this question for someone who has experienced spiritual abuse. Mm. When you ask the question, how can I trust the church again? How can I trust God again? How can I trust mm. other Christians again? We are a pastor or men or fill in the blank mm-hmm. with someone who violated them and wasn't in a position of spiritual authority or used God or used scripture to, to mm-hmm. cause harm to be able to say within this wider story we believe god is telling that's a false story it's a it's a false story someone who lives within that false story or like you said doesn't expose that false story they're they're culpable it's it's not the story that is being told it's hard i mean it's definitely hard when you're in the trauma and you're in in the filth and you're and you're recovering from it and your life has been altered you have lost your job you have lost relationships you have lost your community any of the things that come out of that but to be able to say this is to even just have this category of like this is not how it was supposed to be this is not Mm -hmm. how it was intended to be I think that that can be helpful because mm. when we go into this, I want to know why, and I want to know if they were evil, and I, often know, I want to know if they were good, or were they both evil and good, or how could someone possibly do this, or why did someone do this? You can just do this little rat race in your brain and never have an answer, which is why I really appreciated that article ending with, I have no answer. To be able to sit in that mm-hmm. place of, I don't know why, but I know it's not the true story it's not the story Mm -hmm. that that person is supposed to be living in and they roped me into a false story and i'm suffering the 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 side effects of that false story i think another another thing that that really helped me come to grips with and again uh this is a very amateurish uh, almost silly attempt to even address the question of the problem of evil right because I'm not going to even assume that there's an answer. We've been talking about this for more than the history of religion itself for six, 6.5 thousand years of written language, right? But I think the work of recent New Testament scholars in understanding what is actually being talked about when Paul says, pistis Christo, the faithfulness of Christ, the cornerstone of our faith is not anything we do in the first instance. And this is something that's been 
articulated not just from Protestants, but also Greek Orthodox and also Catholic uh, scholars, that at the first instance, the very, very foundation of faith is Christ's own faithfulness to his mission. And I think once we recognize that the beginning of our faith is Christ's own faith, and we get to participate in that, we know that we're linked to a broader story. And that's the key. What is that broader story? I remember when I first got into Christianity, I became this like, you know, ravenous, cage stage Calvinist who read this book by John Piper called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And I think today, if I was going to rewrite that book, I would say 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Live. And I think that that's the key difference here, that if our story is about God punishing and murdering people because of sin and, and putting all of that on Christ, yeah, that's one way to look at it, but what exactly is being vanquished on the cross? It's, it's cosmic evil. It's in the Hebrew HaShetan. It's, it's in Colossians, the language of after he rose from the dead, he, he made a parade and humiliated all the demonic powers and the powers and principalities. He, he put an end to the everlasting force of death and evil. The question then becomes, why do we still experience death and evil? And I think that's, that's the, the tried and true category of the already and the not yet. That the beautiful things that someone like Jean Vanier did, opening up communities where people who are the most vulnerable, who are despised and hated by mainstream culture and society, who are given no voice, no representation, can live and be cared for uh, without cost, without judgment, without fear. That's that inbreaking of the covenant community, that inbreaking of God in space and time saying, no, I'm here. I'm going to tell you what your story is. Your story is that you're wonderfully and beautifully made and your value and you deserve a community of people who don't abuse your trust, your, your free will, and your bodily constitution. And we have the not yet part of that equation, the already and the not yet. And the not yet is the same person violating the trust of six women who trusted him to the ends of their own being and saw that trust betrayed in the most humiliating way. And I think living in that tension of the already and the not yet, the only way to do that without going crazy is to recognize that the already will expand and balloon to the complete victory of God. And that victory of God is his justice being vindicated in his resurrection. And what all that fancy theological talk ultimately means is we have a community of people who believe this truth who should be living into the truths that Christ modeled for us. And that means consensual relationships, ethical, horizontal relationships, building shalom, building the Garden of Eden on earth today. I'm sorry to say a lot of churches are far from that. A lot of communities are very, very far from that kind of Eden-like garden metaphor of rebuilding hope and restructuring broken lives. And I think even if we just inch towards thinking about the problem of evil in this way of the already and the not yet, I think it takes off some of the stress of how could someone do this? Because we know that we're living in, in the midst of the mire and the muck, but the horizon has already come. We've already seen the hope and the glory. We're just waiting for its growth, like, like a, a little sapling growing in a wood. Mm-hmm. It's growing, it's growing, it's growing. And I think, someone like me who's gone through 10 different denominations, who has seen the worst and the best 
of of Christians and non-Christians too. I think what I see is that the church is still strong and growing in the lives of people you'd least expect. Who are those, the people you would least expect for you? I think one of the reasons why I decided to come on this podcast is because of my own experience with abuse survivors um, in Ann Arbor and survivors who decide to not let that story define who they are and instead say, I'm going to make my story about not necessarily preventing this from happening in any other time and place because we don't have the power to do that, right? We can't, we can't solve the world's problems. Mm-hmm. But to say, I'm going to use my story to empower other people to come forward. And if someone is not ready yet to come forward, then at least I'm going to empower someone to seek healing. Because people have this tendency, some people have the tendency in this, this circle of community to say they have to get back in the church first, put them back in the church. Once they're back in the church, then we'll heal them, right? Like, I understand the temptation to do that, but that's, it's just not a good idea because you're exposing someone to the, to the signposts of their trauma and you're re-traumatizing. When people who've experienced this get this almost supernatural courage to say, I want to be a voice for the voiceless. That's the kind of source of hope that I'm talking about, that I see the face of Christ in, in, in people who've experienced the most suffering, the most trauma at the hands of the church and at the hands of other people who decide to say, not I'm going to become a, you know, a, a martyr for the church, but that I want my story to empower other people who've been in a similar place to know that that's not the end. The final page of your story does not have to be shame, guilt, alienation, and estrangement from yourself, from other people. And even in the most ideal cases from the person who, uh, from letting the person who abused you become the psychological ghost that haunts your dreams, that makes you physically sick. That the gift of grace and the gift of forgiveness does not mean throwing justice away. Right. But the gift of grace and the gift of forgiveness means being able to turn your page. So many Christians and so many people across so many different Christian denominations uh, are deciding to come forward with their stories. Uh, it's this wonderful horizontal growth of the Holy Spirit across all of the church so that when I see those people who decide to come forward with these stories to, to get into that spirit of of disclosure, that's a source of profound hope and inspiration for me. I was on the phone with um, someone who experienced horrible abuse in the church and we it was a very healing conversation it was this person is navigating do I go back to church I'm I still would say I believe in God but the church is just and I don't know I don't know where the hope for the church is and I I go to go and I visit and I I have this horrible reaction to being there and I can see the agenda of everyone all over the place and I can just smell the power and I can smell the politics and so where where is the hope for the church and I said I believe it's us I believe it's those of us who've been horribly wounded our bullshit meter is super high and we've already lost everything we don't care. We're going to walk in there and we're going to be like, no, this is not okay. And Mm -hmm. we're not going to shut up because we saw what silence did. I believe 
that that is one way God is going to redeem the church. I don't think it's the best way. I don't think it's the (laughs) ideal way. I don't think it's the way it should be. But I do think that it's the way it's going to be. I think that that is the story that needs to be told. So I really appreciate you saying that. I think this is an issue that people don't want to talk about, but they really want to talk about. Does that make sense? Like, it's an issue that is burning in the mind. And my, my orientation now towards the Roman Catholic Church, I think there are so many people who need to hear that it's not the end of your faith journey. If that means you don't go to church anymore or whatever, but God does not have to not be a part of your life in that healing process. And I think people have to hear that, that unbelief and doubt and faith and faithlessness is not a solution to, it might be a justifiable response, but it's not a solution to um, spiritual abuse. That's where so many of us have found ourselves and uh, Mm -hmm. just like, okay, I don't, I'm not in this place where like, I'm an atheist and I don't believe God exists, but then I don't, I've only ever associated him with this institution. Now what do I do? <laughs> what do I do now? I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do. And exactly. um, Richard Rohr, he's a resource. I think um, his book Falling Upward is going to be a Richard resource. Rohr. Yeah. He's, his book Falling Upward was just so beautiful. And he, I also did the, the corresponding worksheet book, the journal. I love it. There's a worksheet yeah, I love, yeah. book. I love it. I want to read it again. I listened to it on audiobook and then I want to read it again but I just I just felt like he was he as devoted as he is to an organized form of religion he was so open about how toxic and corrupt it can be and also like this organic non-institutionalized community is probably closer to Jesus's original definition of church anyway because what, what's really sad to me is I think a lot of people are going to church because that's what good Christians do, right. but they're, they're in so much pain and yeah. they're, they're hurting so badly. And like you said, they're being re-traumatized and due to no fault of potentially the church that they're attending, they need to take a break. It's, it's not good for their emotional, spiritual, physical health to just force themselves to do it because that's what good Christians do. And I think a lot of the reasons why we don't stop these people from hurting others is because good Christians honor people in authority because good Christians, you know, good Christians don't gossip, good Christians don't whatever, insert whatever. And then this stuff just is allowed to happen because we're being that's why good Christians. That's precisely why I think in terms of that stereotype of good Christians, once we begin to say that it's not just a behavioral question, but if someone decides to stay silent, that is an act of betrayal of the very message of the gospel itself. I think that's a very powerful suggestion. Whether or not people accept it is another question. But I think once we think about the Greek words and the cultural context of disclosing, bringing in the good news, it's a breaking in. It's a glass shattering. It tells us something that we didn't know before. And I think once we have the courage to bring to light what was in darkness, we're doing the task of God. We're, we ourselves as laity are doing the task of God that the administration and the hierarchy don't want to do or yep. are reluctant to do. Amen. 
This podcast supports TearsofEden.org, a community and resource for those in the aftermath of spiritual abuse. If you want more resources, I encourage you to visit TearsofEden.org. And if you subscribe to the mailing list in the month of June, you'll receive a free meditation at the end of the month. If you have been helped by this podcast, I encourage you to share it with a friend and take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review. I'll see you next time. My memory of you working at PCC was like sitting at the lunch table with just some giant book on the table in front of you, (laughs) trying to engage people in these deep, you know, theological debates. And most people are just like, eh, I kind of want to eat my sandwich. But I loved it. I thought it was awesome.